Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate squash player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average squash player is I've also made squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Squash Radio listeners, we've got some big news to share. We are thrilled to announce that Squash Radio has its first ever sponsor. Squash Radio has been a way to engage the squash community by sharing some great stories of the people involved in the sport. So to have a sponsor, partner, come in and support this initiative, and who is just excited to bring these stories to you all, is truly an honor. We will be sharing more about their journey, and you might just see their products at a squash court near you. More to come. What about this? This call is being recorded. For some quick background on our guests in this episode, here's a quick overview. Alex Williams is a passionate squash player who is a late bloomer to the game. After having three children, finding a new hobby to throw herself into was top of mind. As luck would have it, a beginner squash clinic emerged at her club at a fortunate time. Although it was Google that helped her learn the rules, she became fully addicted between the new ways she could challenge herself on court, as well as the amazing community of other women players. It is clear from the conversation with Alex that she is a great ambassador at her club and shares how much her coaches shaped her excitement and love for the game. She recognizes that not only has she found a lifelong sport, but it has also opened up doors and allowed her to network and grow her business as well as her husband's. Between watching the pros on Squash TV and learning this new world of squash, Alex was inspired to put pen to paper and launch a squash-focused website. Combining her passion for writing, research, and interview skills, The Show Court was born to help craft modern squash stories. Put another way, squash, freshly squeezed, as she's coined appropriately reflecting her style and approach. We wanted to learn about how she crafts these stories and gather her fresh perspectives, so we dive into her writing process on how she chooses topics and the people she features. However, something we know for sure is that she observes and tells her story with a raw and authentic perspective. Additionally, she feels a rhythmic link between her process of writing and being on court, which really shows through her stories. Alex's energy and personality are infectious. 
So we are fortunate to have a newcomer to the sport who is helping to rewrite its future. We hope you enjoy our latest conversation, and don't forget to check out Alex's website, theshowcourt.com. Hey there, squash fans. Welcome to another squash radio episode. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and we are very excited to bring another guest for you today, calling in from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We have Alex Williams. Welcome to the show. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. I love to do this with every guest of Anytime we're interviewing each other, there's like the short version of what we do and then the longer version. So I'd love to quickly go through what's the cocktail version of what you do, Alex? So I am a passionate club squash player. I love to play squash. I'm on court for about 10 to 12 hours a week. But most people would probably, if you recognize my name, most people would recognize my name being the founder of a squash website called The Show Court. We created The Show Court with a mission and mandate to tell modern squash stories. So what I spent my COVID, what I spent my quarantine hours doing was really looking into some great modern squash stories and how can we position the game and tell these stories with a more modern perspective for modern audiences. And what about a little bit of more on your background of what you did pre-starting the show court? So I, I have a funny squash story. Well, maybe it's not funny, but I would say my squash story is unique compared to other squash stories I've heard. I picked it up later in life. So I was 34 when I started playing squash, and I had three kids in four years, and I run a really successful digital marketing business. So I was knee-deep in my career, and I had all these kids, all these little babies running around my house. And I had a little bit of the baby blues, as many women who are driven and competitive and who have been told their whole lives that we can have it all if we work hard enough. I definitely felt, oh my God, I worked my whole life and here I have it. I have it all. And I, I definitely had the baby blues. So my husband and some friends really encouraged me. They said, we think it'd be great to get a hobby. Like you just need something new to tackle and see what that is. And my husband doesn't work on Mondays. And there was a ladies beginner squash class on Monday mornings. So my friends and my husband really encouraged me to sign up for the class. And it's probably comical looking back. Like, I think I picked up that racket for the first time. And it was like instant. It was instantaneous. I loved it. I couldn't believe how challenging it was. I spent my whole life playing competitive sports and being a reasonably competitive athlete. And to be so challenged right from the get-go was really exciting and invigorating for me. And I think that what really, one of the biggest reasons why squash is so appealing to me and why I think I've fallen so deeply in love with it is because it feels like a lifelong challenge. Um, it's not something that you can just study for six months and you win your box league or your top of your ladder. Like this is something that takes work and purpose and intention and challenges me and challenges players around the world every day. And for me, I love that long game. I love that discipline that it takes to improve and how no matter how good you think you are, there's always 20 other people who are better than you. So for me, that's really exciting. And it's really turned into a passion of mine. Obviously, I've started a, a website and I spend a lot of time on court. And even more importantly, I've developed an amazing community of women who support me and who are, I have lifelong friendships with them. And I'm really proud to be a woman playing squash in Alberta, especially not, you know, being a, I'm not older, I'm not old, Connor, but, <laughs> but I'm a little older. 
I'm a little older. So seasoned? Uh, yeah, I'm seasoned. I'm not a vet. I'm a late blooming, blooming rookie. Let's put it that way. So I, I think you. that for me, my squash story is a little bit unique. I'm not, none of my family played squash. My husband doesn't play squash. I'm from a city called Victoria in British Columbia, and it's got a great squash program. Like it's got a good squash scene, but we're not a big squash city. I really had almost no exposure to squash before I picked up yeah. a racket. And they go, and so one. day one, you, you knew no one. Is that correct? Yeah, I knew no one. I knew no one. Wow. I had never played. I, did, I, I wasn't sure if it was racquetball or squash. I wasn't even really sure what I signed up for. I did the old thing where you Googled, what are the rules before you even go to the class? Sure. Yeah. So it's a unique squash story, but I hope that it is a squash story that I'll be hearing others tell. Uh, so, you know, other women my age who decide later in life to pick up the racket and start whacking the ball around. So talking a little bit about that, you bring such a wealth of experience in terms of marketing and how to communicate thoughts and concepts. I, I know you started the show court and we're going to spend some more time diving into that. But in that in-between period where you learned the sport, you picked up squash, you were getting really into it versus starting the show court, were you bringing people on court? Were you just all trying to, how, were you trying to spread the word before the show court? Yeah, I think by, by nature, I have an inclusive disposition. So I am an includer. I'm that girl in the 11th grade who's come to the pep rally. Like I'm totally that girl. So for me, um, I have a, a wealth of mom friends at my club, and we really started to grow. And we have a great groundswell of novice women who are have kids in preschool, and they are they want something to do. They want a great workout. They want to be challenged. They want to be social with one another. And squash is a massive part of that. We have uh, a Monday morning classes where there's like 12 to 20 ladies who just come down and you bring your coffee and sometimes you have your kids with you and you talk about your life and you talk about your day and you get 45 minutes worth of squash in and we before pre-covid we were doing that mondays and thursdays and we were building a great groundswell of participation and i think that's how many people was that well, I would say that we were probably at like 20 women, 25 women. And considering yeah. I would say eight months before that, it was probably like eight to 12. I think that really what helped was we have a pro here at the Winter Club who, we have two pros at the Winter Club who are huge advocates for women's squash. They really encourage more women to play and that our pros are Glenn Stark and Ian Power. And they really go out of their way to provide opportunities for women with kids to have a chance to play. And they really do facilitate connection. And I've been really happy to support them in facilitating that connection. So it's, oh, I can play Monday night. Who else can play Monday night? Exchanging text messages, setting up Facebook groups, making sure everybody has each other's number, making sure you have the right, uh, a woman to play who's your right skill level, who meets your energy level. All that is critical into creating that movement to grow your sport. So our club is called the Calgary Winter Club. And we're not unique, but we're a private facility. So it's a private club. So what the challenge with that is membership is finite. It's not like you can just go out and rustle up 10 girls, right? If that was the case, I feel like it would be a totally different, you know, ball game. But in the club, we have a finite membership, only so many women to draw from. And then our club also offers, I think, 10 different sports from curling to tennis to bowling. So we don't have a competitive atmosphere between each department, but you're always trying to find women who have the time and capacity and interest to participate. So for us to see those novice women numbers grow so substantially in such a short period of time from the collaborative effort... All the gals got on board with it. 
it was really exciting and it still is really exciting. What I love what you're laying out is what I would call the ground game for squash and for growth. And a common theme that I talk about and have shared with people is access to the sport. Now, I think when we think of that, a lot of time we think of new court construction or new areas for construction. But what is sometimes not totally embraced is actually what you're laying out of, hey, these members, and yes, there's a barrier. It's a private club. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. It's a private club. Yeah. Private club. So there's barriers to entry, be it a membership or like fees, but you have that audience group. And so how do you market to those people and bring them on? And- Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I think that our club, what we, sorry to interrupt you. I promise this won't be. No, no go ahead. I was going to ask you, I know this is so instinctual for you because this mm-hmm. is how your brain thinks and this is your life, but what are the ways that you know, whether it's sip and serve or Thursday roundup, how would you be suggesting other clubs and pros to think about how to really position growing it just within their clubs and getting more players on court? I think that for us, what has really worked well, and I would say that I'm a great case scenario of it, but I started playing squash and the pros identified that I obviously was keen and active and they really embraced me and unofficially empowered me as an advocate. So it's like looking for ambassadors for your program. Who are the people within your program who really like what you're offering, who are appreciative of your time and effort, and who are excited to grow the community? And sometimes it can be hard to turn that lens on and look at, they're just class participants, but maybe there is somebody in that Tuesday night class, which is an intermediate drills class. Maybe they are cracking jokes and maybe they're obviously having a great time. Can you look at that person and can they become an advocate for your club? So asking people to be advocates, it's almost, it's a challenge, right? You're making an ask, right? Just like you're asking somebody to donate money, you'd be asking them to to donate time. And that has a value. Um, Yeah, it's almost more precious than money because you can always, you know, here's $30 to go away, you know? A thousand percent. I'm always like, can I just give you my credit card? (laughs) I'd way rather do that. So to ask someone to be an advocate can be challenging because I think as an asker, you are, you're worried. You don't want to be asking too much. You're also asking them to align their reputation and recommendations with yours. Like it can be a big thing. But I think that when you get over the hurdle of like, you know what, this person's obviously passionate. If you look at all the positives of that potential ambassador, how passionate they are, how much money they're willing to spend, the energy they bring to your club you'll actually see that the signs are already pointing to all the yeses. So if you're Mm going to ambassador programs, I say that, I call it an ambassador, but it was a very unofficial thing. Glenn and Ian really just said, do you know more gals? What do you think these gals would like to do? Is there a way we can make it easier for women to play? What is the language we should be using when we're encouraging women to play? Those are all the right questions. A hundred percent. And because they took, Ian specifically is my coach and the first instructor I had. And so he really asking me those questions that showed to me that he wanted my input. Like it wasn't just, Hey, I want your money. Like he wanted my support and he could see that there was potential and he was willing to take the risk to ask someone. And he'd only known me a couple months, but to start asking me those questions and start gathering that information. So really, I think that it's funny the hardest part can just be asking the ambassador, would you be interested in inviting a few friends down? Would you be interested? Or do you have thoughts on this program, how we could change it? So I love what you're saying about sort of an ambassador role. And I wonder, 
what could be an amazing growth opportunity here is taking the model of what you're spelling out as potentially scaling that. So what do you think would be a great squash ambassador role? I love the idea of scaling it. I think that hidden in every club, there are extroverts. They're not hidden, they're extroverts. They're probably like singing along with music while they're playing on court. And I really think tapping into those extroverts, I know there's a lot of focus on bringing juniors on board, and I think that's important, but I think that there is a massive segment on the population, kind of 30 and above, who are looking for great social opportunities to be active. So I think that those ambassadors are those extroverts in your club. And to scale it, the first steps are, I think, for, just formalizing a really basic, what am I actually doing? So I do a lot of volunteering. Over, I volunteered on a lot of committees over the course of my life. And one thing that in my old age I'm learning now is if, you, if I'm going to donate time, I want to know exactly what you need me to do. Mm-hmm. Not only so that I know I'm fulfilling, so I'm actually helping you. I don't just want to like twiddle my thumbs and hope I'm helping. I want to actually be able to support you. I would want to know what I'm accountable for. And I want to know what the time commitment is. So I almost feel like to scale a local club ambassador program, it actually wouldn't be that hard. It's probably as simple as defining two or three roles that an ambassador, a volunteer ambassador takes on. And then formalizing that, how does a pro even approach an ambassador? Because again, asking people to do things for free is not everybody's cup of tea. Like it's not for everybody. And I also feel like what makes being an ambassador appealing is if it's, um, this sounds funny, but a low commitment. So it's like, all I'm asking you to do is talk about squash whenever you feel like it. Tell people you have a great club that you play at and maybe highlight what you love about it. And you're probably already doing that anyway. Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was awesome. I played squash for two hours with my friends, Johnny and Billy. Those potential ambassadors are probably already doing this. So an ask like that is not going to be a big thing. And then I would say, It's something as simple as every one Friday a month, we're going to have a social, like a sip and serve or whatever. We're going to have an exhibition match between our two top players. If you feel comfortable, would you invite two friends along, you know, who are new to squash so they can get a feel for squash? Now, most extroverts have probably been dying to do that already. (laughs) They're probably like, they've been waiting for you to ask them to do this. So I think that the key to volunteerism in terms of an ambassador role, I would identify a key as being very clear what you need from those ambassadors and making it really easy for them to feel good about what they're doing. So make them really feasible to accomplish because that way everybody leaves with a good feeling. Completely. You know, and as we're talking through this, I realize a lot of people may fall into the category of saying, well, that sounds good, but it wouldn't work at my club. And at every club or there's going to be hurdles. And so I think the the more we can identify how to overcome those hurdles, mm-hmm. be it guest fees or those kind of things. And it's just giving arming them with the information of how to navigate those options. I'm really simplifying the flow chart of these are all your options that are available to go through. If we think of squash as quote a brand, and you who's done so much marketing, it's if I was Red Bull, you have brand ambassadors. Like what yeah. are they doing? How are they spreading that word? And I think we can look towards you. And this is why I think you're such a, a already a huge asset to the sport is you're taking all that knowledge and we can help really arm others to grow a sport that we love and is, I think, not growing at the rate that we would want it to. Yeah. You know, and I think it's really interesting. So I'm a digital marketer, like I kind of to 
be uh, layman's about it. I run Facebook ads and Google ads and I work with all the fancy algorithms. And I had to like hold back from poor Glenn and Ian because I was so ready to run Facebook ads. I'm like, I swear mm -hmm. to you guys, for $2 a day, I can get, we can fill this stuff up. And we were, so finally they let me be the chair. Finally, they let me, I badgered them. They let me be the chair of our provincial championships, which our club was going to host. And they're like, okay, Alex, you can run your ads. I don't know what you think is going to happen. So I said, all I need is $20. I just give me $20 and let's see what happens. So I created these Facebook ads that were targeted, blah, blah, blah. I did exactly, I moved my little chess pieces and three and a half weeks out from that tournament, we had almost 60 people signed up. And that's big for Alberta. You know, that tournament might have only, the previous year might have only had 100 people total, right? And uh, maybe 120 people total. And they, half of them would have signed up in the three days before the tournament. So to have this almost 60 people signed up three and a half weeks before the tournament, that gave us cash flow, that gave us awareness. How much was the entry fee? Oh, it was 20 bucks. We just did a $20. Oh, wow. We did a no frills. Or maybe it was 25 bucks. I think it was 25 bucks and you got a smoothie and three guaranteed matches. But how we positioned it was like, if you think you're good, come and show us, right? Everybody's got 20 bucks. If you think you're hot and you tell people you're hot, come show us you're hot. And that was like a really good positioning. This has nothing to do with a t-shirt. This has nothing to do with a prime rib dinner. If you think you can hang, if you think you got business... Let's see if you have business. And so we saw a massive swell. And all of a sudden, we started hearing like some of the top players in the city. They were signing up and they were signing up early. And I'm going to throw this offer out there. If there's any club anywhere in the world, if you have 20 bucks, you want to try some Facebook marketing, I will help you free of charge. I will help you set those ads up. I will help you test those. I will teach you how to set those ads up. I'm 100% happy to give time to any club anywhere who feels like there might be potential in digital marketing. And I, you know, I'm throwing that out to the universe. You contact Connor if you want to connect because I'm happy to help. When we look at the gap between where the sport is now and why it's not growing, it's, it really is a marketing effort. I, I think that we have access. I know we want to grow more courts, but it, there's an element that let's also make sure that we're fully utilizing the inventory that we have available. And there is a lot of inventory. Agreed. Um, agreed. So a while back, were you wondering who our sponsor is? Well, the mystery is over. It's Pro Sport LED. Now, for a new mystery, what do they do? The innovators at Pro Sport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport based on photometric studies as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features that then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. Go beyond standard basic lighting. Pro Sport LED has you covered. Your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. 
These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Find out more info by going to squashradio.com slash LED. We think they're great and so do you. You bring up so many good things, I'm taking notes. But one thing that I think was very important from context is, is just to focus on junior squash versus adult squash. And I completely concur that not enough focus is going on for adult squash. But it's interesting, the USTA, the United States Tennis Association, Mm -hmm. almost 90% of their resources went towards adults tennis. Interesting. And so now is over the longevity, the the pipeline for elite athletes has gotten hard or, or diminished. Right. And I, can, I really, I only speak more about the, the sport in the United States because that's what I know. Yeah. And we, when I was at US Squash, we had to make the focus on, we need to make sure our future is going to be in a good foundation. And we really did a lot of structural changes and improvement to try and increase supply because the the demand was going up. So just from a ranking points perspective and structural point perspective, it couldn't have taken a million players on. Right. And even now, so we were struggling going from like several thousand to several, even more several thousand. And so we have to change the structure. But like now, when you look at an investment portfolio, it's still skewing a little bit too much junior focus. And we mm-hmm. need to to now do the inverse of do, you know, even 50-50 would be great at this point. I totally agree. I 100% agree. I think that from a marketing and even business development perspective, who are the purchase influencers? It's moms predominantly, and then dads, and then little Jimmy gets to decide where he wants to spend his time. So going after the juniors has value because you have the ability to instill a lifelong love of the game. But 45-year-olds have a lot of life to live. They have a lot of money to spend. They have flex. They can drive themselves to the courts. Like even these very basic things, they can book a court themselves, get themselves there on time. They also have some focused interest. They're not, they're not playing 45 sports plus doing homework, plus trying to go to the movies. They can be specific about their interests and they will encourage family and friends. They are far more likely to, a husband comes out, he's going to bring his brother and then he's going to bring his two kids to squash class on Saturday because he's having such a good time. I think that right now squash seems And don't get me wrong, junior development has a crucial place in our sport. But I think that looking at trickle down, trickle down squash, like why aren't we starting with those people who first and foremost have the credit cards, right? Like who can pay for your month? Who can pay a drop in? Who can pay for a rocket? Yeah, 100%. And this is, if you think of economics, and this is essentially we're dancing around economics here. And um, there's an element when you get into your 30s or 40s or 50s that this can be very economical in the sense of time mm-hmm. in terms of in 45 minutes, you can get one of the best workouts. Agreed. And, right. And also maybe you're looking to do something new that is you can improve by yourself, but it's also very social and, and community oriented there. Um, and I think what is also really interesting, and this is like me, we're going down a tangent, but that's okay. So our club decided to put on a pro squash doubles tournament and it was supposed to happen actually like the second week of October so it would have just happened a couple weeks ago as I was putting together the marketing packages from the SDA they gave us the statistics on the average squash player the average doubles squash player but I'm willing to say that it's reasonably comparable to the average adult squash player and these the average squash player has one if not more but at least one university degree they're highly educated. They have a higher net worth than average. They come from top earning postal codes. 
So what I say to that is not necessarily, I don't see that as, oh, this is exclusive, fancy smancy. I actually see it as a networking opportunity. You can meet some great people playing squash and you can really expand your network playing squash. And there are the people in squash. My experience has been, they are incredibly generous socially and with their time. They are welcoming, they are warm, and not that it matters. I, I have always have had the good fortune of having a great business, but the amount of work I've even been able to secure just through the networks I've built from my squash connections alone has yeah. been amazing. So I think well, the squash let's, offers, yeah. Let's just pause on that for a second and without divulging names or whatever, but can you give us an example of just how that, let's walk someone through what that looks like. Like in terms of- So yeah. you're basically, you're saying that, hey, the reason why you believe in this is not only am I seeing the sort of the pieces of the puzzle coming together, you personally in your own business, you, you've gotten results. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. What I, part of my portfolio is I build websites. Obviously, I run ad campaigns. I'm having different people who are starting up businesses, entrepreneurs who are launching stuff. I'm doing audits and cons consultations for existing businesses. I'm partnering with a great guy named Eric Watson, who is developing a racket app for all five racket sports. And Eric has partnered with Jonathan Power, and they're bringing me on board to handle the marketing. There's a club reopening in the city called the Bow Valley Club, and I am, you know, assisting them with their marketing. I would say that 100% I have experienced windfall from my networking in the squash department. My husband's business has also been a benefactor. I'm just there and all I do is talk about my day and my family and kind of what's new with us. Um, what, what line of work is your husband in? This is hilarious. My husband, our family business, his family business is like a high-end menswear store. So think Brooks Brothers, like fancy suits. And what a squash players, they all seem to wear fancy suits. So yeah. I started playing squash and my husband was like, I'm actually Scotch gonna... and swatches. <laughs> totally. Scotch and swatches. Totally. We certainly look at my participation in squash and my joy of networking and being social. There are 100% have been business, yeah, business windfalls. So we took it upon ourselves. We sponsor some local tournaments. We put our money where our mouth is. We want this community to continue to thrive because we as a family have benefited so much from it. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but... No, of course. You know, I think this is in my efforts to try and help where I went to school, uh, Denison, in an effort to try and help cultivate the team there and to the program was club for its 20, the first 25 years and just went varsity. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to engage with other alumni. And I really had the ask to your point. I was like, look, I want to help develop our alumni network. This isn't just selfless. This can be selfish. You'll yeah. get to know who's a lawyer in this group, who's an accountant, who's a business guy. And it's just that easy first call where it's like, hey, what am I missing here? Can you point me in the right direction? And yeah. it's a part of a trusted network. Absolutely. So I was very candid about that. and But I believe in it, what you're saying. I agree. I think that the opportunity to network in a very passive way is really strong with squash. An example at our club is on Monday nights, we run our ladder league, our box league. So whatever, we have 65, 70 people who participate. So in that three hours or four hours, we have 70 people who roll in and out of the courts. So for me to show up 20 minutes early and chat with other people and to leave 20 minutes later after my match, hang around for a little bit and chat with people, and all I'm doing is chat, chit-chatting. It, and it, it allows well, can to... We, yeah. Just on that, just in terms of spelling out that some people might be like, oh, I wasn't uh, as aware of squash or 
hey, yeah, I get it. I can go do what I do in, in other sports and go do it in squash. But mm-hmm. let's just say speaking to someone who is in squash world would like to grow their business. You're saying, hey, you just chat, but talk a little bit through what you're doing in terms of connecting. Because I think some people have a challenge of separating business from personal and feeling as if it's an imposition. Yeah. And so how do you bridge that gap? That's a great question. First, I think I'm really funny. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> First of all, I'm hilarious. No, I'm just kidding. How do I do it? You know, I have, um, here, here's one strategy I often use when I'm making new friendships in a group of people, maybe where I don't know anyone. Let's say you go to a mm-hmm. fundraising dinner, you don't know anyone. I always ask questions. So the first thing I do is I don't offer up. If people ask me questions, I answer, but I don't offer up a ton of information. I more ask people like, how was your match? How did that go? Have you played them before? Did you try anything new? And all of a sudden people are squash players. We love to talk. If there's one thing that is the great unifier of squash players, we all seem to love to talk about our squash. So that's a great way to open the door. Like how to go? Hey guys, how was the match? That's a really good first step. So I like to ask a lot of questions and then I'll make it casual. I'll crack jokes or I'll not leave commentary, but like, oh, he's got a great boast or your length looked really good. Yeah, I'll just casually mix in. I think that's the first step by asking questions. And then inevitably people start asking questions about your match. Now, I am someone who, although I take my squash very seriously, I market myself as rather self-deprecating because it's, it's almost embarrassing. What kind of grown woman practices squash 10 to 12 hours a week with no future. (laughs) Like my squash isn't going anywhere. And yet I'm so keen. Um, So oftentimes just inquiring about the match really opens up a friendly rapport, right? If you are quizzical and you can be interested in what they're saying, that can open that up. And then it just leads to like, oh, what are you heading home after this? You're going to watch a movie, like anything. Oh, you have kids. What do you, how was your weekend? Are you going to play on the weekend? Maybe I'll see you. I think that these conversations too, the networking doesn't happen in one second. It's not like you meet someone once and they're like, she's amazing. I'm going to find out what she does professionally and make sure I give her all my money. I think it's really about cultivating those relationships. And that kind of leads back to the benefit and value of a a membership at a squash club, a regular, you know, you go to your Wednesday night drills class or you go to your Saturday afternoon drop-in and you make sure that you're friendly and open and engaging. And over time, you'll find these relationships develop because they're, they're friendship. First and foremost, they're friendships. Like no one is going to start a conversation because they're like, I heard that guy's rich and maybe he can give me business. We start these conversations because we have a shared love. And when you go at it with that altruistic uh, mindset, that's when good things happen. But I would say if I was going to give like a networking 101, just start by asking about their match and you stick your head out. You might get rebuffed. There are, there's tons of times when guys kind of side eye me because maybe they've, maybe they lost, maybe they count that on an L on their score sheet when they wander off. But I would say 99 times out of a hundred people are happy that someone is asking it shows enough interest to ask about how their match went. like it. I also sometimes with and I don't know whether this was instinctual or learned. So sometimes you forget in terms of like bridging the gap between if you do have to talk about businesses. I think for me, I always have to believe in what I'm doing. Yeah. And so genuinely, I'm like, hey, this may solve some of your problems. When I was a, a squash professional, I was selling the sport and also my services. Mm-hmm. And 
it, yes, there was a transactional exchange of fifty to sixty dollars per hour at the time, and but really, just as you've it sparked an interest and you've gone lifelong full bore into it. This is why we do it, and it might not work for everyone. Either yeah. timing, fitness, you know, there's a variety of reasons of why not, but it's going to the yeses. And how do you find more yeses? And don't be discouraged by the nos. But for me, at my core, it's believing in what I'm selling. I totally agree. I think that when you love what you do, when you have that altruistic viewpoint. It comes so naturally. Like you're not weirded out to talk about your business. It's a part of your life. And you have the good fortune to be passionate about what you do. And I love what you're saying about the yeses. So I have Bachelor of Fine Arts, which is like a whole different lifetime. But in a Bachelor of Fine Arts, you take improv acting classes, like improvisation. Mm -hmm. And the rule in improv is yes and. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me my whole life. It has to be a last case resort for me to say, no, we can't do that. Like it is always, yes, let's find a way. That sounds like fun. Let's see the positive. Yes, and let's open the opportunities. And I think that I wouldn't say it's one of my guiding principles, but I certainly would say that was something from university that really has stuck with me my whole life. And let's even take the show court. It's like, well, Alex, do you know enough about squash to be writing about squash? Well, I know a little bit about squash. What's that? Yes, and it doesn't matter. Does it really, in the grand scheme of things, matter if it doesn't work out exactly how you envision it? No. Like, it doesn't matter. That's not the fun of life. Not every match ends up exactly as you envision it, but that's the fun of squash. So I just want to say that really resonates with me, what you said, the yes. Approaching everything with a yes attitude makes a big difference. My wife, she works for a large consulting firm and does mm -hmm. training for them and at all different levels, every, everything from analysts to senior partners, that kind of stuff. And so she helps with curriculum development and all these things. One of the things that they get a lot of their consultants or practitioners to do is take improv classes. Interesting. For, exact, for exactly the reason you just said of imagine if you're meeting with a client and you have a certain perspective of how you like to communicate and it's just not matching up. And so people imagine you're re all ready for a presentation and you've gamed it out in your head and everything and then things go wrong. What do you do? Yeah. So like in anything, just even in, in squash, you, you do all the training, you do all the practicing there, but then you, you get in the game and they're doing something completely different that's either that's throwing your game off. So you need to Im improv like right away and, yeah, and adapt into that. So I, th I do think adaptability and improvisation makes a big difference. Look at us. We are like solving all the problems today, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, uh, <laughs> I love it. So the the show court, yeah. what I'd love to get into is, and I've said it to you offline, but I'll say on the record, your writing is just, I love it. it it's for someone who spent so many time like reading about squash. You're a very refreshing writer. You're picking topics that are interesting, but also quickly giving good context and making it engaging. So Thank I you. you I are, appreciate that. Thank you. You're living up to your mission. So I'd love to, I, I would encourage people to go to theshowcourt.com and check out these articles. But since people can read what you wrote, I'd love, and I do want to go into one of the more recent ones you're writing, but let's take one that they could read right now. Mm -hmm. Pick anyone that you like and just talk a little bit how you go about even just conceiving the topic. How do you pick your topics? How do you go about finding out um, more information about it? And then your writing process. So, you know, I definitely would say I have the good fortune, as I mentioned, Ian Power is the pro at our club. Ian is, Jonathan Power is Ian's brother. We do a lot of talking about Splash. So I think that a lot So he's of, your source. <laughs> well, he's y'all. What Ian does is he 
humors is the wrong word, but he humors my questions. So again, mm-hmm. I have only been at this a couple of years. I don't know who's who in the zoo. So I sometimes ask questions that he really humors and he's happy to talk about you know, the answer for 20 minutes or what does it mean and what does it make you think? He's happy to have those higher, those very cognitive conversations, right? Where we're really thinking about the game bigger than what it is, right? As opposed to just the match results or the literal, it's the non-linears. And so my conversations with Ian do really bring me to the non-linear place where all of a sudden you're asking yourself those, some of those bigger picture questions. And those can really help guide the writing. The nitty gritty, though, the the actual like the research and the writing is very challenging, especially when you feel it gets so excited about some of these really tough questions that are harder to chew on that take more time because you are. What's an example of that? What's one that you, you thought was like the hardest to chew, so to speak? Well, okay, so I'll, maybe I'll talk about the article I'm writing right now a little later sure. on, but I would definitely say that even looking at that one about the esports that I just wrote. So in July, the World Squash Federation released a press release that they were partnering with a group called the Global Esports Federation, and they're venturing into the world of esports, which is has pros and cons. But what was really challenging is it's what is the actual motivation for this? Is it fiscal? Is it audience acquisition? Is it uh, political, like in terms of a play with the IOC, what are the actual, what's the actual reasoning behind this? Mm -hmm. Everybody has that beautiful blanket statement, every sports organization in the world. We are here to facilitate participation, like those 10 buzzwords that we all use. And they, they have value, right? They are great. Obviously, everybody does it because they want to encourage participation. But we all know from those governing bodies that there's strategy behind it. There has to be strategy behind it. And yeah. for quick context there, there's already at least one, if not two or three games out there, console games. Yeah, yeah. So really what the question became was like, are we developing a game? If we're developing a game, who's paying for this game? Like this game is expensive. Who's paying to market this game? Like you think that people are just going to be like, oh, great. I don't want to go to a squash court, but I'd love to play squash on my console. So if we're spending all this time and resources developing a game that is taking away fiscal resources from problems, squash problems that we want to solve, where is this money coming from? Who is deciding how this money is spent? Where is the the oversight for that governing body? So I don't know. Here's a great example of where I don't know. I don't know who's who in the zoo. I don't know where the World Squash Federation gets its money. I don't even know if they have any money. They might not even have any money. But I know the PSA gets its money from the players who buy their membership into the association. So when I spoke to the World Squash Federation and I emailed to the info, just the general info, and I was like, hey, can I get a quote for this piece? The lovely people at the PSA got back to me, which was very kind. But it's like, why is the PSA responding to a request for quote for the World Squash Federation? Like that in itself, you're like, oh, okay. Now, to somebody who's been around squash for 30 years, maybe all the pieces line up. Maybe that's obvious and that's how it's always been. But for me, there is the professional tournament arm, which hopefully operates at a profit, which ultimately sells tickets. They take fees from tournaments from that club's host. They do all the things and they take money from players. And then the World Squash Federation, are they like, well, who do they represent even? So all of a sudden my brain goes down all these rabbit holes and it's, well, what is the actual point of this? And who is driving the ship and who is paying for it? 
it's like this player ranked 250th on the tour who like scrapes together their 500 or 600 bucks to buy their membership are they getting any like player development or is their money going towards developing a video game those for me are important questions and i don't know the answers to those questions and it's almost overwhelming to think who do you even ask to get the answers to those questions I, I could spend an entire <laughs> separate podcast answering a lot of those questions, but I will we'll give a quick, it. yeah, I'll give a quick overview. And, and really, it isn't clear. And that's okay, by the way. I think I play golf, I play other sports, and I don't know everything about it because it's really my relationship is just to my experience within that sport. So mm -hmm. sometimes, like if you go into a restaurant, do you need to know who the general manager is? Do you need to know who the chef is? Or do you just want to have a great meal with your friends? So I think there's, let's make sure to know that. But then if you are, if you do have questions and you want to learn more, how do we make that information more accessible and mm -hmm. digestible? So you asked a lot of good questions. The, the reality is that a lot of good questions don't have good answers. And that would hold true here. The WSF or what's called the World Squash Federation is the highest governing body of the sport period. So they set the world championships, they do the rules, but then that goes down to what's called the regional level. So there's European squash, there's the Pan American squash, there's Asia squash, which then takes care of all of the national governing bodies underneath that. So top down to five, I believe. And then there's about a hundred ish governing bodies. Mm -hmm. And each governing body pays them fees, which I believe is currently based on the number of squash courts you have in your country. And that floats up to the top to then support it. So it's, I would say it's very much cash strapped and it's the professional staff. There's about, I want to say three or four maybe mm -hmm. of full time, not even, or in there a lot, but it's gone through a lot of transitions. And I, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for being in that position as I was, as we were at US Squash and even the Professional Squash Association at PSA. The difference is my empathy runs out when you don't take actions towards solving your situation. And PSA has done a remarkable job of, of doing that. And so they extended, to answer your question, they extended their services of media services over to the WSF. Okay. So they are, they're the media outlet. It used to be outsourced and there's another gentleman, but now the PSA does that just because they've built up that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And the PSA is really, they're doing a tremendous amount and we can all sit here and say they should be doing more. I think they know that they want to do more and they're pushing in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, even going back to our earlier conversation about ambassadors, like you wonder if the World Squash Federation, if that's even an organization that could benefit from an ambassador volunteerism program. Yeah, the answer is yes. And then they, there's no infrastructure to, to roll that out. Like even if you and I wanted to go do that, we can do that. And I actually think we should. <laughs> it's having the infrastructure roll anything out. It is hard. It is hard. I won't lie to you. Yeah. It does take time. But honestly, it takes time. I, yeah. I do think we could do it, Connor. And we'll talk about it offline. Yeah. Or we just delete this. We'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, just cut this out. We're at 35-7. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So we'll talk. Definitely, this is a project I think we could tackle. I, I do think the WSF, I think it's challenge. I, I, I mean, it's skeletal staff, like three to four people. That's really hard. But I wonder if bringing on board, do they have a board of directors? How does it work? So, so um, yes. And that's where the scales get tricky because it's so committee driven and they're mm -hmm. all volunteer based. Right. And then it's also a lot of people who are rooted, um, who sort of rise through the ranks and it, it, it's almost like failing up, right? Yeah. Or, or hanging on. And so even the thought of running Facebook ads would be a foreign concept or having social media presence. 
that's why PSA, they are really embracing it and have a partnership with Facebook to get more match exposure. And it's their traction, their stickiness on Facebook is high, very high. Yeah. It's really, and it's just understanding like there are legacy problems, but we need innovative solutions towards that. And just even having simple things like Club Locker, which I I don't know if you're familiar with, which is, um, yeah. And, And that's just at least a centralized source. And that didn't exist especially when I was participating with WSF and US mm-hmm. Squash. It was such antiquated software even back in 2008 and right. nine. I think it's interesting when you talk about legacy problems. Sometimes new initiatives tend to just erase the legacy problems. You know what I mean? Like sometimes oh, even just a fresh idea. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and just, this yeah, is actually where technology, you don't realize I had so, at US Squash, we had so many policies in place in order to work around the technology we had. And then when we got new technology, there was almost, for a while, I wasn't putting in my checklist to revet policies. Do these still hold true? Yeah. And yeah. so technology can really be, it's not a solution by any means. It's no, an but... enabler to your business objectives. Yes, Absolutely. Um, and I think with the World Squash Federation, one thing I would love to hear from them is a more succinct and direct mission, vision, values. Like what mm-hmm. really is, or even greater articulation on the existing mission, vision, values. So what is growth of participation? If you guys are saying that we're going to put our, some eggs in the esports basket because we think that there's some audience acquisition opportunities, I'm cool with that. I just need to hear it. You know what I mean? Like, I just need to hear some articulate. I think that I would even feel better. I could be pacified as a player and as a participant, even just with a little bit more information. Like you said, I don't need to know the general manager at the restaurant, but I'd like to see the menu. Let's see the menu. Let's see what you got. Where do you get your meat? Yeah. I, I would encourage grassroots efforts. It's just we're already so much more mobile and connected and we can just do a groundswell that way, just connect individuals. And it really is because... Truth be told, right now, with the resources that they're bringing to the table, are struggling to keep the lights on and business operating as normal. Sometimes it's, I I know that they need help and as do every potential club and local district. So a lot of this falls back at the feet of the governing bodies and it's a really tough job. And it's really, even at US Squash, when we got more employees, the equation just (laughs) still held true. I kept saying, hey, we need more coworkers. We need more people. And then I was like, oh, we've been successful. Therefore, we hire more people. But then the sport keeps growing. And so the equation yeah. actually doesn't hold true that if you're successful, you, you get more work, not less. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. But I even think, again, clubs must be a part of governing bodies. Like I know our club has a membership with Squash Alberta and Squash Canada. We're a registered club or whatever, some sort of something or other. So it would be interesting even putting together a toolbox of marketing kits for grassroots club owners. How, what are the small ways that technology, if even at its bare bones, technology is information dissemination, what information could we put together as a PDF to provide mm-hmm. to these clubs to at least... Maybe only one in every 20 clubs even reads the PDF. But even if one in every 50 clubs takes action on one of the suggestions, that is a good, as good a place to start as any. So I've had to do a lot of research into, well, not had to. I did research a lot of other sports and kind of what you're outlining of at each touch point, whether you're a player in the game or whether you're an organizer trying to grow the game, there's just how-tos and templates. And that is a a huge gap in this area. I'm saying all this and I'm just as guilty because I haven't done it myself. In the domains I am, I I have done it and improved it. 
but I haven't made it fully public. And that's actually been a goal of mine with Squash Radio is just a, a small example of that. But yes, I need to do that. And there's way too much information that we I need to get out of my head and share. But there's only so many hours in a day, Connor. There's only <laughs> yeah. so many hours in a day. Yeah. That, yeah, I bet your brain is pretty full. Let's go into the story that you're working on now. Oh, yeah. I'm rubbing my temples as we even like. Even... So give the high level, what's the sort of working title, so to speak, even if it's just in draft form? So I would say that even in draft form, the title would be along the lines of career or conscience. Conscious or career. I like that title. So without giving too much away of what the story is itself, what I'm fascinated about is like your writing process and how do you go about, do a little bit of brainstorming about the topics, but now you have a topic of what you want to cover. How do you go about getting the story together? So usually it starts on something really high level. Like I type my question into Google <laughs> and I see what Google spits back. But here is what's interesting about that. You get some really interesting answers just by Googling stuff. So for instance, in my interview with Emily, she spoke about this tournament in Saudi Arabia. So I just Googled, okay, well, what is the big deal? Women's rights in Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden, you start to learn. You learn so much about women's rights in Saudi Arabia. So then I got to thinking, well, what are some of the other countries that squash is incredibly popular, like Egypt? What are the women's rights records in some of these other countries? And I think it is really challenging. Egypt, for instance, child marriages were legal until 2008. And although that is, a, you know, to make them illegal is massive. It's an incredible progression. And I'm thrilled about it. Less than almost 10 years ago, women were being faced with the choice where they had to decide, do I travel to a country where they treat women like this? Hmm. That for me is a big question. And putting myself in that position, like how could you make that choice? after you have spent so many thousands of hours training and you finally qualify for this massive tournament that could maybe not make or break your career, but could really push you to a new plateau and your conscious kind of kicks in. So yeah. oftentimes it starts with those kind of, we brainstorm some topics and I start Googling some really basic questions and seeing what the internet has to say. I like to try and read the room, if that makes sense. I try and read the Google room. Do you go down the social media thread, like following what comments were said or other kind of sources around it? I used to other players. Yeah. For instance, I emailed you and I wanted to pick your brain about it a little bit. And I have people that I've interviewed and people who support me from around the world who are happy to lend an ear and help guide me. You know, do you have anyone yeah. who you think I should speak to? Because also that's what opens the door to larger conversations that I wouldn't even know to have. It's like, yeah. okay, well, did, did you think about this person or did you think about this tournament or this situation? A lot of that um, so isn't available. That must be, it. yeah, that must be, I'm just trying to think of, and especially I'm, I'm guilty of that, like I gave you a lot of information. I almost felt bad because I'm like, how can she digest this? So what is your, you're, you're getting all this information, but then what's your sorting out process? So a lot of the time as I am collecting information, and maybe this is just comes from years of digital publishing and over a decade of writing, but you start to see a through line of a story. Mm. So Stephen King wrote a really great book called On Writing, and it just speaks about his writing process. And it's really easy to read. You could read it in a weekend. But what he talks about is all these great novels where with like heavy themes that are laced throughout the entire novel. The novelists don't write with the theme in mind. They write their paper or they write their story. And then when they go back and reread it, the theme starts to emerge. And then they find more places to, to activate that theme, right? Where the theme works and they can support that theme. So for me, yeah. what I'm doing is as I'm writing, 
or as I'm researching, I'm seeing my story start to take shape and I'm discovering what the actual storyline is. And then I go back and look for more instances to support that storyline. Now, as a journalist, that's my good luck because I get to, I'm lucky, I get to tell it from my perspective. The storyline that sits, sticks out to me is my perspective. So it is skewed to how I see things and to how I think. I'm a woman in my mid-30s with three kids and I'm passionate about women's rights. So, you know, that's what I saw in that story. Actually, I would encourage you to lean into that. You're not the Associated Press. You know, just in reading what you've written, I was like, I was bought into The Voice, and I told you, I was like, hey, there's certain things. I like the story, but there's a context piece that's missing there. But you brought me into your voice. Thank you. I think it's an awareness. And I think that writing, I try and tell my stories um, not masking who I am. I am I'm not a squash professional. Like, I, like I've said a thousand times, I'm new here. I'm a new kid. And I'm just trying to tell the story as I see it. Because I feel like there are a lot of people, I have tens of thousands of readers from around the world, which is really exciting. A lot of them are at the same knowledge level that I'm at. They haven't been following the minutia of squash for decades and decades. And a lot of them are just happy to hear a great story. So I think for me, that writing process, the challenge of the writing is not actually the hard part. It's the thinking about it, the mm. finding the story, and then finding how you can tell that story with some self-awareness. And then there is that an element, to pat myself on the back, there's an element of courage, right? I don't know. I don't know what people are going to think. I'm just going to put it out there and hope for the best. Because some people are going to hate what you write, and some people are going to love what you write, uh, and some people are going to disagree, and some people are going to debate it online. And that's the thrill of it. But you have to take some punches. You have to be ready to take a few punches based on the position you take. I can imagine. And one more, and I'm going into the weeds here, but I'll give an example is uh, the reason why I've studied uh, a lot of different writers and how they write is because I struggle with it. And the reason why I've picked how writers do it, because that for me holds true to anything. You got a blank page and make something. So mm -hmm. what I find myself trying to do is I sometimes find myself writing and editing at the same time. And so I try and separate, okay, now I'm just going to let it all go. Then I go back and edit. And I wonder, again, me not being a good writer, that's, that could be my personal problem. But I wonder with the specific mechanics of that, how do you like to tackle it? So I free thought. So I have a daily goal where I write one good paragraph a day. Just look for one good paragraph a day. So oftentimes by the time I feel like I'll listen to an interview, I'll write my one good paragraph. I'll listen to a different chunk of the interview. I'll write my one good paragraph. And then... After I, I'm letting that paragraph kind of bubble, it's percolating, right? Like it's percolating mm. in my brain and it's percolating on the page. And then three hours later, I'll have a different sentence to add or a different perspective, a different way to word it or a different tie, thematic tie-in. So in terms of the actually in the weeds, I try to write one good paragraph a day. So my articles in their first draft format are usually between 2,500 and 3,000 words. So for context, the, word, the articles that I publish are generally... A thousand to twelve hundred words. So the articles in their first draft format are oftentimes three times as long as the articles mm -hmm. that I actually publish. So after that, the best thing you can do as a writer is cut, cut. Like nothing is precious. So once my draft is written, I'll go through every paragraph and I'll cut one sentence. So I have to cut one sentence from every. Is, that's your actual. That's your mandate. Yeah, you have to. That's cut my one. Do. Like cut it. Okay. Get make the shot right. Don't waste. You don't need mm -hmm. so many steps. Just cut the paragraph. 
I think we fall as writers, you can fall in love with your own voice. You can fall in love with the sound of your own voice. And you have to really look at each sentence. Does this serve what the paragraph is trying to say? No redundancies. So I'll cut sentences, I'll combine sentences, um, and that'll get me down to about 2,000 words usually. And then it gets really brutal because then I have to cut paragraphs. So what that usually means, then it turns into a little game. It becomes moving parts. So I will re-stack my paragraphs, like in the order of the section. So what used to be paragraph four maybe is better as my opening paragraph. I move things around and see if I can make the story flow. And surprisingly enough, after I move paragraphs around, I can cut even more. And then it just becomes obvious which paragraphs don't fit. Like it just becomes so yeah. obvious. So you have to be really ruthless with yourself and you have to be really disciplined. And then I kind of cut down and then I usually send it out. I have a few people who read my stuff. My mom is my editor. My mother is an amazing writer and an amazing editor. And that is my good fortune to have a free editor. And she also knows nothing about squash. So sometimes she'll be like, if she can't follow the story, I know I have a problem, right? Like it should be accessible right. to every reader. It should be interesting and accessible to every single reader of, of any level. So if she's reading the story and she's like, I don't know what you're saying, then I know I got problems. I got to go back and fix things. Uh, then my husband and Ian gives them a read and I have a friend on the West Coast who gives them a read. And then usually, I, yeah, I can trim them down to 1,200 to 1,000 words. But it's a discipline. It's really, to be a great writer, and not that I'm a great writer, but to be a writer who's proud of your work and proud of what you produce, you have to get ruthless with yourself and you got to cut, cut, cut. Yeah, a lot of that makes sense. And it's for me, it's interesting how many times how we are act as squash player, how that reveals itself in, in life. My talent is my hard work I put in. And so with writing, it's I'm not naturally talented. This is much harder to lift. And there's even hacks that I've tried to use. I was going to say Hemingway uh, editor. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know. Yeah. Chris. Yeah. Hemingway editor. Well, yeah. It's been great because I'm like, oh, this helps identify the problems. And then I'm like, great. I don't have the mechanics yet to change it. <laughs> But at least it's, it's figuring out, and I, I, it definitely resonates that in free writing, usually the, the third or fourth paragraph is like getting to the meat and cutting out that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I like think it. that, Connor, writing how you talk, like that is such a great, mm -hmm. I'm expressive and I'm descriptive by nature. You can't see me right now, but my hands, I'm talking with my hands and I tend to just write how I talk. And then those are the sentences that stick. They are naturally the yeah. sentences that do the heavy lifting for me in the pieces. If you had to sort of give a rough range of per article, what's the low, medium, and high of how much time you put into each article? Oh, it's a lot. So it was working really well for me over COVID because I had nothing else to do. But each article, 15 hours, maybe 15 on the low side, maybe like 20 to 30 on the high side. And that's why for the last couple, it's been tough for me because I'm finally back on court. Like, I'm so happy to be playing squash and I want to spend all my free time playing squash that my husband's, you are really dropping the ball on your writing. And I'm like, I feel like we're going to go back into quarantine and I'll get a whole bunch of writing done then. But yeah, it's a huge time commitment. And obviously, I've mentioned before, I have three little kids and childcare is always a precious resource, especially because we both work. So... To really carve out that time, it's a sacrifice. I'm taking time. Often when I'm writing these articles, I have to take time away from my family to write the articles. And, or I have to choose. The time that I do get to take away from my family, I have to choose how I want to spend that time. And that can be really yeah. challenging 
But I will say I'm a happier mom and I'm a better mom when I'm writing and when I'm playing squash, a hundred without a doubt. I was going to ask, does this bring you energy? Yes, a thousand percent. The writing, I feel like I have so many questions and the writing gives me an answer, an excuse to find the answers. And it gives me an excuse to talk to guys like you who like, I, I find it to be such a privilege and I love that I feel like I can hold my own in these conversations, but you have all these answers to this bigger picture that I'm, this puzzle that I'm trying to put together in my brain still, why it all works that way. And that's everything from mechanics of the game to the PSA rankings, to the history, to some of these really heady, challenging questions, the politics of being a, a female professional athlete. These are all yeah. really challenging questions, but I love squash and I love talking and thinking about it. And so for me, it does bring me energy. If you had to pick, there's basically you know three different ways we can communicate to humans, either on video, audio only, or writing. Which is your default natural zone for your voice? That's a great question. I, th I do think it's writing. I do think it's writing. I have a gift for Gab, but I think it's writing. Interesting. I yeah, like I think with writing, you have an opportunity, not that your writing is calculated, but I think that the best conversations happen when people have an opportunity to really absorb what you've said and formulate their own reply or their own thoughts based on what you've said. Mm. And writing really allows people to do that. You can read an article and really think about it. And then three hours later, hey, I read a really interesting article. And I love how an article can leave a lasting impression. I know there are tons of articles yeah. that have left lasting impressions on me and tons of novels and writers. And I love that I have a small window to use my voice and maybe leave an impression on someone. You're 100% right in terms of the impact that the written word can have. And think of how excited the sport gets when we have a New York Times article. Or, right? So there's yeah. a reason why we value that. And I think writers in squash has just been under-resourced and there hasn't been enough incentives put behind it for more writers to come into the sport. So we're fortunate that you've naturally fallen into it. And another comment was, and I'm going to get wrong the attribution, but I remember writing is thought crystallized on paper, right? So yes. I can understand you like that deliberation in order to really synthesize everything. Writing is like harmony, right? It, it truly is a, a musical process to me, how I hear mm -hmm. it. The rhythm, the speech pattern, every mm -hmm. comma, every period, the staccatos. And funnily enough, that rhythm reminds me very much of squash. When I am playing squash, do you know Maceo Parker, the jazz musician? from like mm -mm, the, the, no. Yeah. So he's a great American jazz musician. And Maceo Parker developed a musical theory called call and response, which is mm. where like the horns blare, then the horns blare, then the singer sings, then the singer sings. So they call it call and response. And often I find the musicality of squash, the rhythm of the ball hitting the wall, it reminds me very much of Maceo Parker and, and call and response jazz. So I think that I feel intrinsically, I feel like I'm sounding really pretentious, but I think intrinsically I do feel a rhythmic link between the two processes, writing and being on the squash court. Well, um, no, not at all. I think that sort of captures, I've played a lot of sports in my life and there's two times that when I've participated in, well, three times when I, I tried a sport and it just felt different, something clicked and that was squash, court tennis or real tennis and then mm -hmm. golf. But golf was more 
on the lower side. The first two were just something clicked in me and it was like, I want to know more. I want to get better at this. If, if it taps into something that's core to who you are, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It really does. I'm going to switch gears and go into what I call the quick fire section, which is just okay. uh, a series of standard questions I ask every guest. And if the question goes nowhere, that's no problem. That's on me. <laughs> but we'll go through it. And are you ready for the quick fire? I'm ready. Hit me. So do you have a start off easy? Do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Oh, great question. I wouldn't say I have a favorite, but I just recently watched that HBO documentary series called The Vow, which is all about that crazy Nixium cult group out of the US. And so that has really like, I've woken up a few times at night thinking about, they were like branding women and like all this crazy mm -hmm. stuff. So for me, that mental warfare that this cult leader wreaked havoc on his cult participants with, like that for me, it's terrifying, but it's fascinating. It was engrossing. It was super engrossing. It was crazy engrossing. I'll say uh, I saw The Social Dilemma. It was a documentary on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. Everyone's telling me to watch it, but I haven't gotten my act together. Yeah, it's, um, it will make you, it's all the arguments you've heard about social media, but it just brings it together in such a complete way. And it mm -hmm. also shows that, yes, social media plays a huge role, but there's also something else going on. It's just in mm -hmm. our human nature, like mm -hmm. our need to connect. But when it's used at even with good intention, but wrong metrics or the way it's deployed, it can have, you know, pretty significant results. And I think the challenge is who decides what's right or wrong? It's that idea of policing mm -hmm. the internet. There's some yeah. stuff that's obviously wrong, that it's like, there's definitely black, that is the wrong, but there's tons of gray. There's mm -hmm. a lot of gray zone as who is right or wrong and who decides what's right or wrong. And it's a really challenging conversation. I completely agree. Now, my next question, I can already assume how challenging this might be to answer. It's the question is, what gets you fired up? And well, <laughs> for context here, it can be in squash world or out of squash world. And it can either be positive or negative. But that's oh. the question. What gets you fired up? And I'm going to try and I'm going to try and force you to one. Because I can one. imagine a lot of stuff. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of stuff gets you fired up. You know what? This is going to sound crazy but i love committee meetings so this is in squash and out of squash but i love it is, when a group and, and, and i gotta ask is this negative or a positive way no this is positive and negative but i would say mostly positive i love it when a group of people come together share ideas and commit to action mm -hmm. i love it i am like let's everybody saddle up and let's get some things happening I definitely get motivated, inspired, excited through collaboration and commitment to action. Like I am a girl who walks her walk. I have no time for talk, if that makes sense. If you're someone who needs help, I have all the time in the world for you. But if you're not going to act on what you've asked for help with, it's exasperating to me, which is why committee meetings could also drive you insane. Because you like, you know, that's that's what I was. That's why I was perplexed. Truth be told, I was a little perplexed. So it's both. I get fired up on both ways, which is maybe why I love them so much. Because I know that no matter what, I'm coming out feeling something. <laughs> I know I like I'm not it. dead inside. Yeah. Next question is, what is something or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness? And I'm going to have to qualify for a quick second. Because I think family, friends, that kind of stuff, obviously, that can be such a core driver why we do anything. So think of, is there an activity? And I'm, I'm going to also challenge you to go outside of squash unless yeah. you... It, it is that, but 
it it can also be a thing like a, a coffee mug even. So what brings you disproportionate happiness? Well, I do love a good cup of coffee. I do love that. I love a good bag of Ruffles chips, specifically the sour cream and onion flavor. But I wouldn't say mm-hmm. it brings me disproportional happiness. You, you know what I actually really love? And maybe this is cheating a little bit, but I love a road trip. So my mm-hmm. husband's family has a cabin um, at a lake, which is about five hours. And we'll often go as a family. We take friends all the time. I love that five-hour road trip because, like, you are just together. There's no interruptions. You lose cell service halfway so in, up there. So in the car, you're like, this is my favorite time, the road trip itself, the car driving. The car driving. We are fortunate. Yeah. We drive through the Rocky Dri- Mountains. And it's are like, you driving or are you passenger side? I'm not. You know what? I'm anything. I'm back of the minivan. Yeah. I'm, I'm driving the minivan. I'm fixing Play, the tire. Playlist manager or? Podcast manager. We usually put a video on for the kids. Maybe that's why I like it yeah. so much. Because I feel like no guilt about putting a movie on for the kids for the five-hour drive. Yeah. yeah. And you just have real adult conversations. Also podcasts. Like I love to listen to podcasts. Yeah. So when I take the kids out by myself. I like to go through five or six episodes of a great podcast and really binge a podcast. But I feel like that time where it's, I think I like that time in the minivan driving to the cabin because I know I'm excited for the end. I know I'm going somewhere mm-hmm. amazing that I love, but also I have just the perfect excuse. Like I don't have to be accountable or respond to anything or anyone. I really feel like I own that time. And to mm-hmm. me, that is a luxury to really just own time for myself. I can imagine with everything that you're juggling. <laughs> so the next question is, are, are you familiar with TED Talks? Yes. Okay. So the challenge for you is you're going to give a TED Talk, but the rules okay. are it couldn't be about something that you're known for. Okay. So something that you would go explore and then share. Oh, something I'm not known for. Oh, that's really hard. Here's what I'll say. I'm a terrible cook or maybe not a terrible. I'm not a very confident cook. So on my personal Instagram, I used to do this thing called a cooking show um, where me and my middle son would cook and like I would broadcast for all my friends to see my process in my cooking. And as time went on, I got, I got more courageous with my cooking and I started growing because I put myself out there in terms of vulnerability. Like I was like, I'm terrible at this, but I want you all to watch me try my best. And oddly enough, I have developed quite a repertoire for cooking. Like I would now say that I'm like an average cook, that I serve meals without a disclaimer. I used to always have a disclaimer. I don't know how this is going to taste. I don't know what's going on here. But now I feel because I did that, I feel more confident about what I'm doing. So if it was a TED Talk that did not consist of a room full of my friends who had already watched the cooking show, then I think that's what it would be on. I don't know if that makes sense and I don't know why that comes to mind, but... I think that would be, if I had to answer it, likely that would be my answer as well. I have progressed as cooking and I really love it. I, I, I am now at a point where I'm able to say some of the dishes I put out are definitely restaurant quality in terms of like, oh. now sometimes we go out to restaurants and we're like, well, this is disappointing. Now, I, I'm a process guy and I didn't realize, so this got broken down for me. It's like, there, it's overwhelming the cooking process and people don't break it down. There's yes. recipe hunting not to be under thought, grocery shopping. Then there's prepping, there's cooking, and there's cleaning. And each one of those is its own body of work and thought and expertise and skill. The way that really helped me through that process was actually just using the meal kit preparations like Blue Apron and there's Mm -hmm, a slew mm -hmm. of them out there these days. 
-hmm. And it was so helpful because you got to eliminate a lot of those steps and focus on what you like or don't like. But it also allows you to like appreciate those steps. And you can really see the value. I love your perspective on this because yeah, you really see how intricate it becomes and how it truly is an act of love. It takes so much to create, to cook a great meal. Yeah. And I, I lean into it and I've learned so many different cooking types, Indian, Mm -hmm. Asian, just how do you cook the best steak? How do you cook the best salmon? And so I really, I go uh, down rabbit holes and I've definitely gone that. I also go into equipment land. So... (laughs) I have to have all the best. I have to have all the best equipment. So I get knives, you, you name it. But okay, well, knives and knives. So what did you make knives. last night? What did you make last night? Anything good? I, yeah, well, I've been doing a lot more batch cooking, but last night was the refill. So it was what I call it. It's ribbon carrots, kale that we've grown in our backyard, onions, oh, nice. and then with a curry mix, like a Thai curry mix, adding coconut milk and just let it simmer, and then just curried rice. So it's just, or coconut rice, so jasmine rice with some coconut milk in it. Oh, yum. So one thing I've gotten into lately is juicing, cold-pressed juicing. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I'm a whole new woman. It's It's amazing. It's It's one of the key things that has helped my life, for sure. I feel like my backhand is better because I'm drinking beet (laughs) juice. (laughs) It has a lot of benefits. A lot of benefits. (laughs) Next question. If you were going to run a podcast yourself what would the topics be and what would you cover? So I love, one thing I like to say um, is I like to let magic happen. And it's funny that you actually use that phrase before we got online, you used the phrase about magic because I am a person who always says, let's make some magic. And I say that all the time (laughs) to Ian and he laughs and rolls his eyes and he's like, yeah, let's make magic. But I love the idea of creating luck, creating opportunity. I love to see magic in the world in the sense, like it can come from, yeah, like I just like to see opportunities made and how we create those opportunities and what we do with those opportunities. And I call that magic. So I don't know. That's what I think that would be a very cool podcast. Does any dream guests come to mind or a few of them? I couldn't even tell you a dream guest. Yeah. I have a girlfriend. I have a girlfriend named Laura McNiven, who's like an amazing rock star. And she from Calgary, she runs a mental health clinic and it's in Toronto. And I just have so much respect for her but honestly she is a woman who i feel she sees magic in every day and she makes magic happen and even to just pick people's brains like how did you whether it's from a spiritual or a technical or a professional whatever that means to someone like i would love to pick their brain to find out how i can make more magic for myself i'm very innately curious well i'll get right on that i'll add that to my list uh last question is what books or podcasts would you recommend Oh, that's a great one. So we listen to um, Stuff You Should Know, which is like a very popular podcast. We listen to that almost every night, which has been great. I just read a book um, called The Power of Ritual, which actually, Connor, we should even Mm. have another offline conversation about because I thought so much about squash, but it's by a guy whose name escapes me, but he is a doctor of divinity at Harvard Divinity School. And he talks about community and the place of community in our lives and how we build community and facilitate community and how rituals the rituals um, every community has so for instance a really interesting example of a ritual is you finish your boxing match and you go and you write your score on the board and you talk to the other people who after you write your score like that's a ritual of that you do your warm-up didn't you write about this 
I did write about this. I was totally inspired okay. by his book. So I wrote about squash rituals. And I feel like that piece deserved so much more than I could give it. But it was also a culture mm -hmm. piece. And I didn't think people had a lot of bandwidth to read 3,000 words on ritual. But The Power of Ritual was a, just a great, really interesting read that I really liked. And then this weekend, I read a quick little book. Do you guys have those in the States? They're called Free Little Libraries. Like in your neighborhood, you put up a little library yeah. box and you like trade books yeah. with your neighbors. So I just grabbed a book out of our free little library and it ended up being this young adult novel that I'd never heard of called We Are All Molecules. We're all made of molecules. And it was just a really sweet little story. And it was 120 pages. So it only took an afternoon to read. And it was just a really sweet little story that kind of reminded me of the joy of youth and the challenges of youth and how we communicate. And so that, I read it on the weekend, and that's a little book that has stuck with me since. So I thought it was fun, and I'd recommend that one. Love it. Well, that brings my written questions to an end, and obviously I could go on more. But we're going to draw this to a conclusion for today. But thank you again. I know the, speaking of time, you carving out the time that we spent, I really appreciate it. And, and also for the time that you're pouring in behind the scenes to deliver those articles. Because I really do think that's uh, a way to enrich in people that love the sport, but also entice people who aren't as familiar into the sport. So thank you for everything that you've been doing. Uh, Connor, thank you for having me. I've, it's such a privilege and an honor. And I so much appreciate that you've allowed me to speak from my heart and speak from my lack of experience and knowledge. So thank you. And I hope we could do it again. Would love to. All right. Awesome. Till, till next time. Thanks, Connor. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.